Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When you're born with and given a name like David or Dave or Davy, you realize that you're one of, of many, many millions with that name. And I have been all my life. And as a child, I often found myself to be very distinctive and unique by claiming an association with Davy Crockett, one of my heroes of my childhood. As you know, I like hats a lot. So one of the ridiculous hats that I wore as a child was a coonskin cap. And in symbolic reference to Davy Crockett. And of course, I was doing this in Pennsylvania, not in Tennessee and not in Texas, but kind of worked for me then. Davy Crockett uh, was given land here in Austin, Texas, and I've lived on some of that land that he was given. At least the neighbor told me that uh, many years ago. And, and uh, so I've always felt like, you know, I've sort of followed in his footsteps going from the east to here to Texas. And Davy Crockett announced that he was coming to Texas after losing a congressional election in 1835, a year before his death at the Alamo. He had lost, he had opposed Andrew Jackson and some of the Native American removal projects that Jackson had done, and he went up against a Jacksonian opponent and lost. And he was quite upset at losing. And there at a hotel bar after the election, he was rather upset at those who had not voted for him. So he said, you have chosen to elect a man, and I won't say what he said about this guy, to succeed me. You may all go to hell, and I will go to Texas, he said. One of those great rebukes of all time. We meet one of those same kind of situations here in the gospel lesson, where there's a kind of a big one-liner that sticks out at me and echoes in my mind down through the centuries, just like that statement from Davy Crockett. It's delivered by Jesus to Peter. It's given at Caesarea Philippi, this place where many religions are converging in the caves there, what's called Banyas or Panyas, a place where the Greeks and Romans and others worship the god Pan. And there in this place where there's confusion about where, who is the true God to follow for the people of God, this statement is made. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's kind of like Googling yourself, you know, don't ever do it, okay? <laughs> you might not like what you see there. He does this and they give him some answers. Of course, Elijah being the most obvious because Elijah has to come before the end of the world. It's witnessed in every Passover, the empty chair for Elijah, the prophet who will arrive right before the end of the world. And, or maybe he's one of the other prophets. Or maybe he was even John the Baptist of how unlikely that might be because they've both been living at the same time. But who knows? There's all kinds of ideas going around. And Peter who has followed Jesus from day one, who has observed his teachings and listened to his message, even though Jesus has never said this about himself, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the promised one, the one who will save us. He says, you are the Messiah. This simple statement is one of the greatest statements of faith in all of Holy Scripture. 
And Jesus, of course, tries to hush it up, as he does often in Mark with this messianic secret, don't tell anyone. Jesus had a horrible marketing campaign, it seems. Don't tell anyone. And then he begins to teach them. These disciples are gathered. He starts to teach them. We don't know what he said, but the summary of it is that he will undergo great suffering. The Son of Man, this second Adam, this man representing the people will undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Then he will be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. And Jesus starts teaching this. And it's extremely upsetting. Much like when a loved one says, I'm going to Texas. What? You're going there? You can imagine those families 150 years ago who heard of their loved ones trying, doing something crazy, like going out to the frontier. And they have this reaction. In fact, Peter is so concerned for Jesus that he takes him aside and rebukes him. What a wonderful disciple Peter is. What a helpful person he is, mansplaining to Jesus what he needs to do with his life instead of suffering, rejection, and dying on a cross. We might have this impulse inside of us, too, to stop others from doing what God has called them to do. And others may have that impulse against us, but this one-liner that Jesus gives back to him, get behind me, Satan, kind of amps it up to a whole other level. This is not just a concerned friend having a little advice. This is Satan himself speaking through the mouth of Peter. Satan later in the story enters Judas and gets him to betray Jesus as the story goes. But here, Satan and Peter have somehow formed an alliance. I don't know if you believe in Satan today. It's not something you sort of have to sign on the dotted line about in the Episcopal Church, what you think about Satan, this character that shows up throughout the story of Scripture from the very beginning story of the man and the woman in the garden. This serpent comes, this snake comes and tricks them, gets them to disobey God and eat of the tree, and a curse is put on the snake that a descendant of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And then this serpent shows up again and again, this devil, this Satan, all the way to the final chapters of the Bible. This person, this character, keeps appearing, trying to thwart and circumvent the plan of God to save the world. It happens again and again, and it happens right here at Caesarea with Peter and Jesus. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter is only thinking of himself. He is thinking of what he needs. What is good for him must be good for Jesus. And so he compels him and rebukes him and gets this one-liner in return. It's one of the most difficult stories to understand how Peter could speak for Satan in this way. But there, it it is what happens. And so... Jesus does this rebuke publicly to tell us 2,000 years later that we don't want to be in this situation. The gospel is always scandalous. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. 
It is his being betrayed. It is his suffering. It is his rejection by the leaders of his own people. It is his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. That is the gospel story that we have enshrined and we repeat in our Eucharistic prayers again and again and again to remind us that that is the pattern of our lives too. That our lives will experience suffering many of you have experienced this, the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced in maybe a small way, the suffering that we share with Jesus, the suffering of being aware of the brokenness of this world. Many of you have seen things and seen situations that have broken your heart. You felt what Jesus felt on this earth. He says to the city of Jerusalem, I would like a mother hen, I would have gathered you under my wings but you didn't listen. He says that to them. He feels something for this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus has felt these things for the world. He has suffered in this world. And then he's been rejected. If you've ever been rejected, you know what this feels like. It turns everything upside down. It makes us feel like we're unworthy of any love. This is what Jesus understands about us and about this world, that the rejections of our lives are part of our gospel story, part of our resurrection story. And then he will be killed. And this is the part that the disciples are not ready for. They weren't ready for this even up to the final moment of when it happened. It shocked them. It shocks us even today that this would happen to the one person who loved the world with all his heart and soul and strength, healed people, forgave their sins, announced the vision of God for the world, and that we killed him on a cross. It's still shocking to us many years later. And then, after three days, this is still the gospel story, three days later, he will rise again. It's not the gospel without the resurrection. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is rejection. Yes, there is a death on the cross as a common criminal. And yet, there is, after three days, a resurrection. There seems to be an infinite gulf in most of our lives between those first events and that final event. Three days is a long time to wait when you're waiting for resurrection. Three days is a long time to wait when you're waiting for that one thing in your life to kind of come back to life. Three days is a long time to wait when you're dead in a tomb in first century Palestine. And yet he rises from the dead. So in every story of rejection that you and I might have, in every story of our suffering, in every story of even our deaths or the deaths of those we love, there is this seed of resurrection planted into it. There is this knowledge and hope and certainty that we will rise again. Because that is part of our gospel story. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It is not the end of the story. We live in a world that tells us falsely that we need to get bigger and better and more successful. Our profits must rise. Our attendance must increase. Our kids must succeed. Our side must win. And on and on in our lives we are told that everything just needs to keep growing better and better and better and better. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us a completely different story about how our lives should go.
The Archbishop of Canterbury this week countered that lie in one of his speeches, and since I won't talk American politics today, I'll talk British politics. He attacked an institution that I love dearly, Amazon.com, <laughs> the pinnacle of success in our world. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars of profit, and I'm part of it, and probably you are too, in one way or another. And he rebuked them, and he got in trouble for it, and he always reminds his critics that he's, he's, uh, he's in the line of four Archbishops of Canterbury who died because they said something. He reminds them of that. But he's our spiritual leader, and he said he, he put Wanga, the payday loan company, out of business because they were predatory on people, and now he wants to put the soup kitchens out of business because everyone in his society and his community will be fed because they share that responsibility together. He is countering that narrative that everything has to get better and better and better. He is saying that the gospel story is one of death and resurrection, not of ongoing success that we might experience. The gospel story is riches to rags and not rags to riches. It is about following Jesus, about taking up our cross and following him. And he will be there for us if we do. So wherever you are in this journey, whether you're in the suffering or you're in the rejection or you're in even the death, remember, look to the east. Jesus is coming. Amen.